Hey, it's Greg. Thanks for checking out the Toronto Today podcast for Monday, April 4th, start of a new work week and so much stuff to recap from the weekend. We're going to talk about Elizabeth May and she's COVID positive, age 67, and says mask compliance. It's a big problem. We got to get these mask mandates back. But she went to British Columbia, back from Ottawa, and was at a big party and gave like a kiss to a 103-year-old military veteran, and that was safe. But you have to mask up kids and people in grocery stores. Um, such risk if we don't. I just, the hypocrisy of some of these politicians. We gave Elizabeth May the chance to come on the show. Uh, she has declined for the time being. We'll see if she's willing to talk about it later on in the week. Sheba Siddiqui and I talk about a new study regarding COVID about teenagers and what they've gone through and how it's just been easier for some than others. And we talk about isolation, both of younger kids, older people, and the things we gotta gotta get right next time. And we're still working towards now in this particular uh, process. And a fascinating Vanity Fair article about the lab leak theory uh, from Wuhan, China. New information, new opinion about that information as well uh, with the author of that piece. It's all coming up. Toronto Today starts now. Uh, I want to get to uh, a remarkable investigation uh, by Robin Doolittle in the Globe and Mail. Robin's just plain one of the best reporters um, in our country. And uh, I want to get to uh, what she denotes about Canada's healthcare system. We've talked about this so often and certainly did in January about how uh, hospitals are just pushed to the max around December and January. There's always a, a spring flu bump in hospitalizations. Allergy season. Well, you know, the allergy season isn't just some people sniffing and coughing and sneezing. It, it's more serious than that uh, for some people. So we were always headed towards um, as Dr. Isaac Bogus called it, a wavelet. And I want to get there in a little bit. The news that Dave Bradley mentioned in the newscast, gas tax will be cut by the Ontario PCs. Uh, that started getting reported last night uh, by 5.7 cents a liter. You'll pay less on gas as of July 1st. I think it's important as well, and I know it's numbers on the radio. Sometimes I hesitate with numbers on the radio because you don't have a, a, a maybe you don't have a pen in front of you. You're driving. Many of you don't travel with a, an abacus. It's awkward. I got it. Uh, but here's what we already pay for gas. Here's what we pay right now. 10 cents is a federal excise tax. We pay that. Every province pays 10 cents. Canada takes 10 cents a liter, no matter how much uh, the cost of the liter is. So that's added into whatever you pay. Let's say you're paying, you're lucky and you found a place that's a buck 65 this morning. You're paying 10 cents there. Our provincial tax is 14.7 cents a liter. We're not talking carbon tax yet. That's 14.7 cents a liter. So the government of Ontario is saying we'll take we'll shave 5.7 cents off that about a third or so. Right. You're going to be stuck paying uh, nine cents a liter for gas um, for the 14.7 isn't the biggest. They pay more in Quebec. They pay 19.2 cents per liter in Quebec. They pay a little less in PEI, 8.47 cents. That's the place to be. Oh, my heavens. Charlottetown. Oh. Um, and uh, we pay 11 cents on the carbon tax now. 11.05 cents that just changed obviously with an ad of 2.2 cents man just friday four days ago friday couldn't have been april 1st but it was so we're at 35.75 cents 10 for the gov for the feds 14.7 for the province 11 for carbon tax okay so that's 35.7 cents a liter that's before anything ends up happening and by the way that's before 
uh, our harmonized sales tax goes in. And in Ontario, that's now 15%. Uh, it's 5% in some other provinces, but it's 15% here. And that's the highest anybody pays. Quebec's at 15 PEI's at 14 Newfoundland's at 15 um, Our average in Canada is 9.2. Out in British Columbia, I know gas prices are higher, but but not that's not because of tax. That's because of, uh, of 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 the uh, provincial tax. That's not because uh, of the federal tax and the HST combined. So our minimum tax, need you to know this, is 46 point, basically 46 and a half cents out of the gate. You're paying that buck 65. You're paying a buck 19 for the actual gas and for the retailer and the transport of the fuel and all that good stuff or less than good stuff. But you're paying about a buck 19 and you're paying 46 cents in tax a liter. So if you do put your 50 liters in, we're getting close to 25 bucks per visit. 50 bucks a liter times 50 cents is uh, that's that's where we're at. And uh, and it's a lot. And so people will feel the mental break if you cut that out by 5.7 cents, but it's not everything, and it's only for six months, and it doesn't start until July 1st. So this is this is the carrot stick thing, isn't it? This is a lot. Go back to last summer. What what analogy did we use about vaccination? Carrot and stick. You're you're getting vaccinated to provide uh, protection for your own health. Um, you're going to you know have that protection from severe illness or potentially even death. From the vaccine, but also this is what you'll be able to get back and do. And we hesitated uh, uh, in terms of being able to allow you to do that even after being vaccinated. Look at what we did last spring with closing down outdoor activity. Look at some of the limitations we had when we didn't reopen schools. Okay, vaccine was not the uh, panacea that people thought it was probably still uh, you can make the case important, certainly protected, protected from severity of illness. And until Omicron, BA1 uh, and BA2, um, it protected a lot from a lot of transmission and infection that now happens with Omicron and, uh, and with BA1 and BA2. Let's face it, obviously, we're also getting vaccines for the original strain of COVID. That's not what this particular strain is. It is. It's still worth getting vaccinated. I don't need to sell you on it. And it's probably impossible to sell you if you haven't bought in already in the last 14 months or so. But this is going to be an interesting call. Um, the government says the provincial government says it needs till July 1st to get the required time. We got we got business processes and, and systems to be adjusted. And uh, and remember also, Doug Ford was out there saying he'd hike minimum wage. Well, he didn't until when he got elected in 2018. That promise just sat there or that pledge just sat there. So it's only going to save you a few bucks uh, a gas tank. Uh, Moaz writes the show. Current tax is 14.7 cents a liter. He's right about that. He's on top of it as we are. 5.7 cents would save him in his car $2.57 a fill up. Meanwhile, he writes, Canadian Tire will give him 10 cents a liter in electronic Canadian Tire money until June 19th. He says the province should do better than Canadian Tire. It's not hard to do better than Canadian Tire. Hey, those are fighting words. Um, I bought my kid's bike there. I had a, anyway, people go to Canadian Tire. They do that. So, yeah, you're, you're not. It's the mental thing more than anything else. And if anything, here I am talking about it, and maybe I'm the problem because the NDP, the official opposition leader uh, party, splashes out a, a bold pledge to talk about universal mental health care and mental health protection. Some of it is covered, by the way, uh, in general and by OHIP. Some of it's covered if you have a job and if you have uh, benefits. Some of it has not been. 
Okay. Um, so the NDP gets that out there. And about five hours later, it's, it's about the gas tax. It's about 5.7 cents a liter at the pumps. But that's human nature. And that's what people might remember. Doug Ford is looking out for me and he's trying to save me money here. The other party wants me to spend more money. This will be the case when it comes to lockdowns. Doug Ford locked us down. He did this. He did that. And Doug Ford and, and the conservatives will point to the opposition parties and say they would have locked you down harder. They would have kept things closed longer. They would have made you wear masks longer. And what will be the evidence or even the suggestion that he's wrong from the, what will be the counterpoint to that from the opposition parties? That's what's going to be interesting here. Um, a little later on, I want to get into this uh, Robin Doolittle uh, investigative piece in the Globe and Mail. I'll give you the headline first. I got about a minute to do it. Canada's hospital capacity crisis will remain long after the pandemic is over. To solve the country's capacity problem, experts say leaders need to finally confront the deeper flaws in how Canadian healthcare is structured. I've been saying this for quite a while, and many others have too. This system doesn't work. And every time it feels like somebody pledges uh, to have a conversation about revisiting any aspect of privatizing healthcare, people put their hands up right away. Some people do and say, no, 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 we can't do that. We can't have an American system. Stop right there. No one's talking about making us the United States of America for healthcare. Now, I will tell you again for the second time today, I live there. I enjoyed the healthcare system there. I found it efficient. I could get things done if I needed an MRI, if I needed to get my kid in. I it was really efficient if you have a job and you have benefits. The the floor drops out when you don't. And that's not right. And that I can't endorse. And that I can't abide by. But to not have conversations, you <laughs> you think moving along like this, well, you know, dust our hands off of that pandemic and then we just move forward. It's not that simple. And this piece documents that. We have to there's the there's the subheadline. Leaders need to finally confront the deeper flaws in how Canadian healthcare is structured. That's not just building more hospitals and building more beds because you need doctors and nurses and support staff to staff those beds and staff those hospitals. And where are they coming from? And we still have an issue with brain drain. Doctors going to Europe, doctors going to the United States because why? They can do better. They can make more money and they are well within their rights to go and do that. Go where things are best for you. But we've had bat and elective surgeries. We've had backlogs for elective surgeries for years, years. There's many a night when you can't get an ambulance for years in January. This is not COVID didn't bring this on. It just shone a spotlight on what we already knew. Before we get to our brilliant next guest, and I want to put you uh, in the uh, mode of heading to Vanity Fair, or buying Vanity Fair, subscribing to Vanity Fair to read this brilliant journalism uh, about the COVID-19 uh, lab theory leak, uh, the lab leak theory, rather. You might remember we played a clip in the summer. Jon Stewart went on Stephen Colbert, right? Buddies from The Daily Show. And Jon Stewart floated this clip. And a lot of people, a lot of people that I think more left than right of center weren't happy with Jon Stewart. I mean, he's their guy. I love Jon Stewart. I adore Jon. And this is really, he hadn't been around in a while. He had retired from The Daily Show. He hadn't um, started his new Apple TV show, which is interesting. And he got pushback. Here's how the segment went. Science has in many ways helped ease uh, the suffering of this pandemic, uh, which was more than likely caused by science. (laughs) 
So, like, well, so this perhaps a, this, there was a chance that this was created in a lab. There's an investigation. A chance? Well, but I, so, I, 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 oh my if God. there's evidence, I'd love to hear it. There's I don't a know. novel respiratory coronavirus overtaking Wuhan, China. What do we do? Oh, you know who we could ask? The Wuhan novel respiratory coronavirus lab. The disease is the same name as the lab. That's just, that's just a little too weird, don't you think? And then they ask those scientists, they're like, how did this... So wait a minute, you work at the Wuhan respiratory coronavirus lab. How did this happen? And they're like, mm, a pangolin kissed a turtle. And you're like, no, I... You yeah, honestly. And, and guess what? Jon Stewart made that more socially acceptable to talk about then. This is June of last summer. This is 10 months ago. And now this brilliant journalism comes our way from Vanity Fair. Very pleased to welcome on to the show Catherine Eban, uh, contributing editor at Vanity Fair. She also has written a brilliant book called Bottle of Lies, the Inside Story of the, gener of the Generic Drug Boom. Catherine, it's great to have you on. Thank you for making the time for us here in Toronto. Oh, delighted to join you. Thanks for having me. When I play that clip, do I have that right? A lot of people talked about that and they're like, what on earth is Jon Stewart doing? Has he lost his political mind? But it, we, we all we all have sat around in backyards and, and at workplaces and and uh, with our relatives and said, how on earth? Like, like, shouldn't we have a better sense as to how this happened here instead of just shrugging our shoulders and saying, well, it's a pandemic. I guess we'll never know. You know, the the question of where this started is just ongoing. We may never know for sure, mm -hmm. but it is like one of those uh, sort of grassy knoll uh, questions of our generation, which is, you know, did it did it start from some as yet unfound animal, uh, you know, sold in a market uh, or did it? possibly come from a lab accident of some sort. Um, and, you know, the, there is this fundamental issue of transparency around all of this, which is there are people who are in a position to shed more light on this, to sort of join the quest for the origin, who have not been uh, as forthcoming as they can. And that is one of the things that I took a look at in my article. You write about um, Dr. Redfield, um, you know, talking to Dr. Fauci and saying this is something we need to investigate. And Dr. Redfield then felt uh, is the best way I can put it shunned from further discussion uh, uh, about about that concept and, and at least looking into it and doing due diligence. That's right. So, you know, in January of 2020, uh, and this is right at the very beginning of the pandemic. Uh, Dr. Redfield, and he has told me this, uh, raised the question separately with Dr. Fauci, with Dr. Jeremy Farrar of the Wellcome Trust in the UK, and uh, with uh, Tedros, the Director uh, General of the WHO. He said to them, we have to examine the question of a lab leak with utmost seriousness. Uh, part of the reason he said that is because he knew that there had been what is called gain-of-function research uh, into coronaviruses. So that is sort of risky research that is intended to optimize the infectiousness of coronaviruses. He knew it had been taking place in Wuhan uh, at, at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. So he told them, we really need to look into this. And then shortly after that, 
they had very detailed confidential discussions in w- from which he was excluded. And they emerged with an argument which said it definitely came from a zoonotic uh, spillover. Uh, but he didn't even know that those discussions had taken place until much later. Is there there doesn't seem doubt that the National Institutes of Health and they that's the federal uh, they oversee biomedical research for uh, for the United States of America. Right. right. The NIH was funding research at this particular lab. That's that's been that's not just rumor or speculation. That's documented, right? It's documented. But the way they did it was this, which is they didn't fund it directly. They funded an entity called EcoHealth Alliance, and that was a nonprofit virus-hunting science group, Uh, but the director, the president of that organization, Peter Daszak, had a very close relationship with the lead coronavirus researcher at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, and through that NIH grant, he was giving a sub-grant to the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Uh, But nonetheless, that sub-grant was subject to all of the NIH requirements for transparency, for turning over data, um, and really since almost the start of the pandemic, the NIH suspended that grant uh, and has raised a lot of questions about whether EcoHealth Alliance complied with the terms. Wow, that's that. Yeah, that's that's got some remarkable um, reactions coming from me from it. Catherine Eban, uh, just to reset our guest, contributing editor at Vanity Fair. Uh, you should go to vanityfair.com, read this reporting. Um, I never feel like science should be politicized. That would be the first thing. You know, should it be? Should it not be? I would say it should not be. And yet. That's just all we have, it feels like, right now. Um, Masks are politicized. The vaccine was politicized. And I think about where we were in 2020, Catherine, and obviously leading up to a U.S. election, um, you know, tempers were frayed all that summer. That's that's all we talked about. Um, And even the development of the vaccine um, was people were skeptical about it during the Trump presidency. And then they weren't skeptical about it once uh, once the White House turned in January, February. When you think back to that summer, too, it, it became patently obvious that those of us who just wanted answers, those of us who just wanted give us the straight goods is really difficult. I mean, I couldn't watch those those Trump newsers after a while with uh with Dr. Burks and, and Dr. Fauci up there, it was, it was eminently frustrating. Yeah, I mean, there's no question that science became the ultimate battleground. But I think to some extent, uh, because Trump had so politicized the pandemic, because he had such an obvious political agenda when it came to blaming China for the pandemic, there were many people who refused to look at this squarely because they didn't want to feed into a, uh, you know, a racist, demagogic, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, nationalist agenda, which is on the one hand understandable, but on the other hand meant that the whole question of COVID origins was not being examined squarely. I'm sure there were people frustrated also within the administration and, and, and that worked for public health that either worked for NIH or worked for the CDC 
who he would do his news conferences, right? He would, oh my gosh, he would call it, he'd go to his rallies, he'd get out of control, he'd call it the China virus, he famously called it Kung Flu at one point, and you're just watching, cringing, knowing how racist and ethnocentric that is, and and yet that was preventing, wasn't it? Real questions, real data, real research into what actually happened here. Um, We, we call it the Spanish flu, we call it, you know, we, we have documented flus coming from other areas, but we we weren't able we weren't able to do this almost part and parcel because of 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 what Trump was how he was describing it. You, you know, that is absolutely right. And I think that for the mainstream media, really examining these questions has become a kind of third rail. You know, mm-hmm. n- nobody wanted to do it. But what I set out to do is to sort of strip away the conspiracy theories and try to look Uh, at the legitimate questions that were being asked, you know, and once you look at those, there are legitimate questions to be asked. And there are legitimate questions to be asked about the transparency of our own government, the U.S. government, uh, in all of this. In doing your research, Catherine, and and preventing, again, this is just brilliant journalism, it's on VanityFair.com, um, did you come away with a different opinion about um, Anthony Fauci? I know a lot of people, it's been like waves, almost like the waves of COVID. They have been all in, hanging on his every word. They have rolled their eyes. He he proclaimed uh, late in 21, I am science. He used that phrase. And, and you think, I heard from so many doctors saying, it's constantly changing. We're learning new stuff all the time. There's no one proclamation or documentation that has held up over 25 months. How did you view it when when you 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 talked to more people about him? Difficult job, but but did your perception of of the job he's done alter over uh, the course of this research? Well, let me say, I mean, he has had a long and storied career, and he has contributed incredibly mm-hmm. to world health, public health. His work on HIV was outstanding. The research he's funded has done incredible good for the world. So, you know, I take none of that away from him. I think when you look at his record around this question of transparency, or rather, I should say, the record of the NIH, uh, it is clear that they have not been sort of fully forthcoming with documents surrounding some of the research that was being funded in Wuhan, yeah. you know, nor have they been sort of fully forthcoming about the um, legitimate questions that were raised in discussions with Fauci and other top scientists about the origin mm-hmm. of COVID. I mean, they, you know, as I clearly document, they had uh, their own very significant doubts about whether this virus was engineered or not, which they've expressed mm-hmm. in email, emails and, you know, other discussions where there have been documents that have come out. Mm. You got to go to VanityFair.com, uh, read this. Uh, it is worth the time. It is worth, uh, you know, uh, just getting that information and, and all the people that you spoke to. Uh, it's on VanityFair.com. Catherine Eban, thank you very much for making the time for us here in Toronto today. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. 
The New York Times headline, many teens report emotional and physical abuse by parents during lockdown. New data on teen mental health during the pandemic suggests for many home life was full of stressors like job loss, hunger and even violence. And I mentioned it a little bit earlier, how it just feels to me like we've got all these sort of one way, a few. And and I, I think many have sort of figured this out. A lot of one way traffic doctors who um, I, or I'll call them that elites. And they think they make great money, haven't lost a dime, huge houses, um, kids kids have, have huge bedrooms, not worried about paying internet, not worried about paying extra for gas. And they somehow think that not only should COVID be our number one priority in life, but that, that we're being irresponsible if it's not. When we're looking at kids, Chiba, you're looking at your four, I'm looking at my two, and we're just trying to in a way, put it all back together for them. Let them socialize. Let them be places. And and you and I, we've talked about our uh, luck and our lot in life before. A lot of us aren't as lucky as the two of us are or some of our listeners. And they, it's the last thing on their mind right now. Getting their children right is, is, is their priority. You're right. We don't have grandparents who are living in our house with us, right? We don't have, we, our parents aren't with us. We don't have elderly people. We have that option so that we are in a place of privilege, you and I. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, what kills me about this New York Times article is um, the emergency room visits for suicide attempts rose 51% in adolescent girls during the lockdown. So to me, it, that, that just right there, the mental health toll that this has taken on kids because of this pandemic, there are so many things we could have handled differently. And you mentioned doctors, elite doctors. We have to clarify, it wasn't all doctors, no. right? There were some that did say, you know, they did talk about this, the the effect of uh, of these lockdowns on our kids' mental health. Now, according to a sick kid study last July across Ontario, the more time students spent online learning, the more symptoms of depression and anxiety they experienced. Now, we know this, right? We've seen what it's done to our kids. And what really bothers me is I see that there are certain school boards across this province right now who are who still have the option. Well, I think all of them. You have the option to continue with virtual school next year for your kids. And I know people who are like, oh, there are people in my life who are considering this, who are signing their kids up for another. A are third. they really? What, what, yes. what do they tell you? Why do they tell you? They'll, they're they'll scared. Do that? It's fear. Okay. Okay. It's fear. They're terrified. What if I get this virus? I don't want the virus. Some of them don't leave their houses. They don't live their normal lives anymore. They're just terrified. Everything has to be outside, six feet apart. We have to yell at each other. Everybody has to wear a mask. Uh, and sure, I get that. If that's your comfort level, but don't do this to your kids. You know how I feel about virtual school. Mm-hmm. I saw what happened with my kids. And my kid, it was an extreme situation. I mean, they have their rooms. They have their Wi-Fi. Simple things like, well, it's not simple, but a breakfast program at school. Kids yeah. having to go without even eating. For the whole day, because there's just no food provided at home for whatever reason. The extracurricular activities, physical sports, even just being around other kids. I have four. And when people say, every time I go somewhere and they, you know, I have my four kids and told, they, somebody will always look at me without a doubt and say, are they all yours? They're horrified, <laughs> the fact that I have four. But I'm telling you, during this pandemic, having four came in handy. Because I used yeah. to kick them out into the yard. And I have a yard. That privilege right there. I'm not in an apartment building somewhere where we're all cooped up and they had each other. So the importance of having to see other kids playing with other kids, playing sports, all of that, the toll it's taken, it's just, we have to start looking forward. We can't live in fear. I'm telling you, you you put that so well, and I'm telling you the parents that I talk to the most 
who have uh, an only child, I, I walk on eggshells oh. having those conversations with them because my my sons have had each other. And whether they always get along or whether they always see eye to eye or not, at least they it's not just them alone, isolated. And I've got mm-hmm. and I, I feel that way about my parents, that they've got each other. So everybody has somebody in my little universe and that. That is a relief. So as difficult as all this has been, um, you know, uh, they they found absolutely there's a correlation with with the worst mental health and isolation. And someone might be listening to you and I going, look, uh, when would you have had the schools open when they were closed? Well, I'll give you an answer. January. And I think absolutely mm-hmm. January. And I think there could have been a consideration last spring to reopening them um, at least for the last month of June or by by the end of May. We needed to do more for education workers and we needed to prioritize them for vaccination. But I watched all summer, all summer, yep. um, educators uh, fiddle about with the idea of, of mandating the vaccines. I watched all these union heads say, well, it's a personal choice and it's a private health matter. And it's that about and I couldn't take it. I couldn't take it. And then there was this rush getting into September and all these unsafe September hashtags. And I'm like, <sighs> honestly, like yeah. who knew? And then we see this this morning and this, you know, who? what's your youngest six? He's five. Five. Yeah. He's been in a mask for two right. years. So this one is the hardest. And I, I'm running out of time with my kids. I'll be an empty nester in a half decade. But I see this headline um, in, in, in of this UK study, um, a generation of young children struggling to crawl, talk, share, make friends, oh. use the toilet independently because parents have either been busy or, yeah. or isolated and kids have just spent too much time alone. And half of that stuff, half of that stuff is done in daycares and junior kindergarten and kindergarten and just the ability again, then there, there we go again with masks. So again, save it i'm done with your seatbelt analogies everybody wears pants it's a minor inconvenience yeah it is for you but it's not for them it's never been for them for for their ability to read and socialize and see faces and read lips and all that stuff when i toddlers are struggling more with tying their shoelaces something that we all take for granted well like well he'll get it eventually it's frustrating for all of us with toilet training and shoelaces it, it drives me crazy. We can't even acknowledge the damage that's being done here, whether whether it was for a good reason or not at a certain point in time. Yeah, I'm with you on all of that. We have to keep having these conversations because, God forbid, I, everyone says, oh, you know, we're not going to have another lockdown again. I would have told you that. Well, I actually knew that schools would close. Remember, I told you. You all did. December, I owe you I said, a steak dinner. Like <laughs> yeah, some, you do. A thick a one bet. at that. Yeah. <laughs> we had a bet. Medium, please. Uh, <laughs> I knew they were closing in January. And I have my, my five-year-old. He's barely learned anything in kindergarten. So what did we do? His reading was behind. His pronunciation, his letters. So we started working with him. We've spent the last, I'd say, four or five months every he's got his sight words he's got his alphabet so now he's reading Mm -hmm. and he's you know he's writing and he's all of that because of us and it's nothing to do with his teachers it's i'm not blaming his teachers it's a situation that he can't even see their faces their mouths when they pronounce a letter because they're wearing a mask so just recently his mask was taken off he loves it i can see just to change anything but when we were on that lockdown in january we didn't put him back in school we pulled him out. We pulled our grade three. We pulled her yeah. out for half the day because we saw what it had done to her mental health. She's the most social butterfly out there. And we're not doing that to them again. And who knows what the mm. future holds. I hope we have learned from this. I hope our politicians, I hope our, I hope 
we know better next time. I've just I, I won't have the time or the or the tolerance for people shocked at these studies. If you want to make the case that there was a risk benefit to do it, but understand that you knew that this was happening and that you did this and that you and that you're required. The TDSB is like we need more early childhood educators, kindergarten. You guys had one of the strictest policies. You closed before everybody else. You 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 buckled to the unions. You did all this stuff. And and now we got kids that can't even read basic facial expressions and yeah. they're headed to grade three or four and they still should be in grade one. Like, seriously, we all we yeah. all were with that one kid in class in, this, in elementary school. And we're like, I don't know. Are they going to leave him or her behind? We got a generation of kids who need more schooling and and they're not going to get it because we're you know, that's not how we roll. We're not going to make uh, entire classes repeat grade two or grade three. What about the four day work week? Stephen Del Duca, liberal leader for the Ontario uh, liberals, was on with John Oakley three to six right here on 640 Toronto. And he talked about it. This started as a sort of like. April one joke like this is what he'll legislate, but it is something that more people talk about. It is something that uh, other countries have indeed adopted. Um, and we'll tell you about those countries in a little bit. Here's what he told John Oakley on Friday. This notion that the way that work is currently conventionally defined has been with us for all of human civilization and all of human history is not true. Work has evolved. We see work changing. We see a lot of people who are coming into their careers. There's lots of vulnerability, lots of precarious work out there. I think it, it, you know, it requires us to constantly look for ways to improve the situation and to create that better work-life balance for people instead of folks who are exhausted, especially when you think about during COVID where people are being attached to their work. It feels like almost 24 hours a day because of the virtual platform. So we're going to take a look at it. We believe in evidence. We believe in facts. We want to make an informed decision based on the pilot that we are going to launch. Yeah, it's more simple. Look, we, we talked about the hybrid scenario last week with some workplaces, and and I believe that there has to be some element of in-person work. And I think it's, I, I would maintain, Sheep and I had a long conversation about it. Yes, it's better for the adults. Yes, if you put 20, 25 years in, I get why you might not want to go back, but I don't want it for my kid. I don't want my oldest son working in his room at his apartment or house from the age of 25 till 45. I want him out there. Um, and some of these countries, Iceland, Japan, New Zealand, have all experimented with the four-day work week. I think in some ministries it works. Uh, Dr. Eric Ham joins us from uh, X University. Have you looked into other countries doing this? Have you sort of, like, like, does it pass sort of a litmus test for you as something that would work for certain industries? Would it work for education, for example? Well, you see, you did as you always do and you stumble on the most germane example first. Um, no, I mean, the short answer is no. The short answer is, first of all, I wish I could uh, see it as anything other than an election ploy. It's so funny right before an election cycle that it comes up with and, you know, all of the right watch words about work life balance, family, COVID. I mean, he struck every chord you had to uh, to hit. So that leaves me a little bit lacking. But no. OK, in general. Yes, you can convert to a four day work week for many industries and countries have done it. The problem is, as you said, is that there's those industries that have things like collective agreements and um, um, uh, what are they called? Things of understanding mm -hmm. where you have to have so many hours and so many days of training and you may or may not be able to squeeze that into a four day work week. And that doesn't I mean, yes, education is a great example. Teachers are a great example. Professors are a good example, but also things like 
to be an engineer. You need so many hours and so many days of professional training before you get the title. And if you're going to squeeze that into four days instead of five, then you're going to elongate the training process, which takes away from the year's working process. So maybe that's kind of a long and, and winding road way of saying, yes, it's doable, but it's going to take a lot more thought than just dropping back on the pandemic and trying to appeal to people's heartstrings. It's going to take a lot of work and, and it would have to be very malleable and very nimble for some people to fit five days of legislated work into a four day week. Right? Like I'm seeing some of these countries listed and they uh, like Belgium has a pilot project plan. Uh, but here's your workday, 730 a.m. to 3.30 p.m. And there's there's sometimes every couple weeks, there's a half day at, uh, on Friday, 7.30 a.m. to noon. Everybody loves the idea of getting out early on a Friday. That's fine. Um, but the Monday to Thursday thing starts earlier, ends earlier. I've got no problem with that. But but to your point, yeah, then if schools did it, if elementary schools and high schools did it, then parents have to adjust. And we're just talking about, you know, daycare and and keeping an eye on kids and whatnot. I always feel the same way when people talk about year round schooling. And I'm like, well, you're preventing kids from getting summer jobs. You're preventing kids from going to camp for seven, eight weeks. You're preventing people from taking, you know, travel or focusing on summer sports like I, pff, I careful what you wish for. A lot of things sound great on paper. Well, and you know what you do with paper, and that's the problem. And that's why I get really fed up during election cycles when I hear people throwing out these buzzwords and trying to harp on people's emotions. And I'm not saying they do it on purpose, except they do do it on purpose for votes. It's like when they come out and they say, mm -hmm. and I'm not going to mention any specific party that says, why don't we have socialized pharmacare, dental care, and daycare? And they say that. And of course, there's a segment of the population that's going to jump on that and say, wonderful. Thank God I've been waiting for this forever. But do you notice that there's no costing of it? There's no pricing of it. There's no talking about what it's going to do to the unions that are involved on the employment level. This is really and I know, you know, this is the problem with 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 election cycles is they promise and they promise and they harp and they grab the watchwords and the buzzwords. They know people are going to tune in with absolutely no back end accounting of how we're going to do this. And I frankly think it's cruel and unusual to people to promise things and then pull them back when they do that accounting and find out that they can't afford it. But you know what? That's elections. It's never going to end. Mm. Canada and uh, and Ukraine, and I think the United States and the Ukraine as well. Um, the, you know, you, you probably turned your television on, uh, poking around. You're probably watching some basketball, Final Four. But then when you turn to CNN and you turn to BBC, you see um, th that there are atrocities. Be th there is an ethnic cleansing going on in Ukraine. This this is this is the Balkans. This is um, you know the Yugoslavia region in, in the mid '90s. Um, it's it and and obviously people are evoking World War II. I do think it's important to do it responsibly and carefully, but they are making those evocations. Um, when I think about economics, I think this is an economic issue because this thing could go on for ages and we could be providing them with weapons after weapons, millions of dollars after millions of dollars. And I do wonder, I'm going to play audio after seven o'clock from a former um, Iraq veteran who says, the United States has to be a world leader and put boots on the ground right now. Let's call this bluff. Let's move this this needle forward. Do we have the stomach for that in North America? Do they have the stomach for that in Western Europe to challenge Vladimir Putin and say, keep doing what you're doing, but understand that we're, we're here now and you're going to have a tougher time doing it? I think that that day is coming ever so quickly. I mean, I think it's true. I think the world, of course, is tired of Vladimir Putin. I've yet to hear anybody in the last month or six weeks cheer him on or wear, see a, a Russian 
hockey jersey at the grocery store. But again, we've been talking about the back end. There's a lot of costs. This thing could run months, if not years. It could run billions, if not trillions of dollars. And what I think that Canadians have to do since we live here is think about things like our budget. We have one coming out on Friday. Mm -hmm. And are we willing to help fund America's war? I mean, if America wants to wage war against Russia, one could argue, you know better than me, it's been coming for decades and decades. And there will, of course, be a sympathetic element to where Canada sits and will want to support what we consider to be the correct side of the argument. But these things get very, very expensive very, very quickly. And you know what? It's a question of opportunity cost. What do you want to do with Canadian resources as we come out of a pandemic we come out of a situation where we have inflation at three times what the Bank of Canada is, is allowed to let inflation be. Our economy is a little bit out of control right now. And we just gave away as Christmas gifts trillions of dollars that happened to fuel this inflation. Do we want to do it again? I mean, is this the hill on which we are willing mm -hmm. to die, this Ukrainian problem? And the answer might be yes. The answer is in terms of a humanitarian effort and bringing Ukrainian people to Canada, maybe the answer is yes. But is it is the answer yes in terms of funding a war against the Ukraine in terms of arms and lives? And that, frankly, I'm not smart enough to know. But you have to be careful because we you know do. that sometimes these get in and get out wars last months and years and months and years cost trillions and trillions of dollars. And frankly, frankly, I support the Ukraine a thousand percent. But our economy is so fragile right now. I don't think that we can be in a financial position position to fund the, the the peace and the freedom fighters. We just can't. Well, for our, our audience, we Canada's given them, um, Ukraine, $150 million in multifaceted assistance. We're offering $620 million in sovereign loans. The cost, okay, so the cost of, of then uh, assimilating refugees, bringing them in. And yes, I'm for it. You're for it. Um, they are. We are fast-tracking these refugees almost more than any coming from any other war-torn country in the history of war-torn countries. Here's the, the that's the big question is when it comes on television at night and the document, the, the news report says two Canadian soldiers were killed in Ukraine today. We have to know how we uh, are able to take that because it was hard in Afghanistan year after year to hear about Canadian casualties. And there weren't a ton, but there were enough that it was on our mind. When do we get out? Is the juice worth the squeeze here? Are we just pawns to the Americans doing this? This feels like obviously a more global war than hunting the Taliban responsible for 9-11 and, and the people who harbored those terrorists. But it's but I don't know what our stomach I, I don't know what our capacity for those news reports are. I don't think it's as strong as some people think. I mean, everyone wants to you know, stick out their chest and say, we're Canada, we support the United States and we wanna be on the right side of history. But you're right, it gets very expensive in terms of lives and dollars very quickly. I personally think Canada should do what Canada does best, which mm -hmm. is take in immigrants and give them a better life and give them a start. I mean, I'm not a war historian, nor do I have any, any knowledge of how to fight or how to win a war. But I think that Canada sometimes, like when we talk about the energy industry, doesn't exploit our comparative advantages enough. And we yeah. seem to have one in humanitarian efforts. So maybe our maybe our our hill that we can die on is bringing displaced Ukrainians to Canada and helping them reset yeah. up and restart a better life. We've done that many times and we seem to do it well. And frankly, we seem to do that better than sending militaries into countries. 10 seconds. Tell me you you are on my side. Uh, you Sometimes you aren't. You can't retire Vince Carter's number before Kyle Lowry's. 
I don't want to. I don't want to threaten arson. I'm I'm not an arsonist or a pyromaniac. You you have to retire Kyle Lowry's number for anybody else with the Raptors. Have to. Hear me, hear me, oh Israel, as we say heading into Passover. <laughs> I wouldn't retire Vince Carter's number. He quit on the Raptors. <laughs> Thanks. Check out. Don't let the door hit you on the way. <sighs> feel strong. I, I feel our bond is as strong as ever. We uh, though we may agree on where the Dolphins are headed next year. Great to have you on, Eric. Thanks. Stay healthy, Greg. Uh, Professor Eric Camp from X University. Uh, let's say good morning to uh, Shiba Siddiqui. Um, so Ramadan happening right now. It is. Yes, it's the third day of Ramadan. It's the holy month for Muslims where you don't eat or drink from sunrise to sunset. And that started um, Friday. And so that goes Saturday. right to May. It started Saturday. Well, sundown, right? Friday yes, night? Well, su- yes. Friday. Well, look at you. You know your stuff. What? Yes. Sun- <laughs> Friday night. Yes. I converted over the weekend and I didn't want to <laughs> lead with it, but uh, but here I am and uh, I'm all in. <laughs> Yeah, Friday night. Yeah, yeah. And you don't, so you don't eat, you don't drink, you don't, even like smoking, vaping, chewing gum. And you know what? Not even water. That's a question that a lot of Muslims get. Nope, not even water all day long. No and there hy- are exceptions. So no right? hydration. No hydration, nothing. I mean, and there are exceptions if you're elderly, if you're sick, if you're pregnant, if you're, ch- you know, children, mm-hmm. then you don't fast. No. Okay. Yeah, we had a, we had a soccer, we had a game in Aurora, our uh, our Ajax under uh, 2008 boys team, and one of our best players uh, is Muslim, and the dad told me to let the coach know. Obviously, he was fasting. Our coach is not all up on every religious holiday uh, ever, but but we <laughs> well, said it's good to know. Yeah, we said let's it's keep important. an eye let's keep an eye on Muhammad and make sure he's doing okay. I thought he was extra grumpy and crusty. Despite the fact we won the game, I mean, we well, always. Well, you know win. what? The first week is always really difficult. Even with you know my older boys, they're they're fasting as well, and they have you know they're gonna they have hockey, they have basketball, they have taekwondo. Yeah. So they're gonna be fasting through it. This week, I want to give them a little bit of a break and just get them sort of accustomed to it because it's the first days are you know they're really hard. But I mean, it it has so many benefits: self discipline, creating healthy habits. You break unhealthy cycles, and there's a focus on spirituality as well. And then at the end of the month, there's a huge celebration. Eid, where you just go buck wild and it's a big party. Yeah, eat. I, I know. Uh, I know. Eat well. So there's some. Do, uh, are there? There's do's and don'ts. You saw this in the Toronto Star um, about Ramadan related Q and A's. A Q and A. There are. I mean, it's, it's generally what I've I've said. I mean, it's just it's just it's. First of all, if you have if you know someone in your life who is Muslim who is fasting, it's wonderful to wish them a happy Ramadan. It doesn't matter if it's at the beginning of the month, middle of the month, end of the month, whatever it is. Just you know, just acknowledging that. Um, but there aren't really any don'ts. It's just life goes on as normal. It's just for anyone who is fasting, it's just everything that I said. You just don't, you don't eat, you don't drink, you don't, you won't, you'll see them, you know, and that you might be a little grouchier. There mm. is something called Ramadan breath. You might have a little bit of bad breath. So forgive anybody who does, but that's where masks come in handy this year, right? You can't really <laughs> smell people's breath. So that's, that's a, well, the, gur- a little gurgling, a little scope or Listerine isn't, uh, is that um, a violation? It, as long as you don't, no, you can. As, I mean, and like brushing your teeth, as long as you don't swallow anything, right? So that's, that works there. And it's like, it's the first, I think the first time in two years where mosques are open and then in mm. the, the evening meals called an iftar. So you, it's, there's a, there's a lot going on right now. Everything's open. People can go to each other's houses. It's, it's very communal, which it hasn't been for the last two years. So it makes a really big difference. Mm. Uh, so you saw the, you saw the photo of Elizabeth May. You saw her tweet on, on Saturday and you've seen this photo, right? Yes. This is yes. from March 18th at Carlton House in Oak Bay, which is in uh, Victoria. And she's obviously a BC uh, MP. And she gives a 103-year-old war veteran uh, wearing a beautiful tuxedo uh, a kiss. Like, she's in on on the kiss on his cheek. Um, 
you know, and uh, and here's and neither what, are wearing masks. Neither are wearing masks. Yeah. yeah. So her tweet on uh, on Friday night tested positive for COVID yesterday. Been in Ottawa since March 20th. Right. I know this because the photo that she took kissing this 103 year old is on March 17th. So she flew back. OK. Rates here are crazy high. Isolated when I started feeling unwell. This illness is no joke. I do not think I'll be hospitalized, but very sick. There's 10 people in all of Ottawa uh, hospitalized right now with or because of COVID-19. I'm letting people know that. And no one in ICU. I'm letting people know that. It's true. I looked it up on Saturday. And angry. Too many people unmasked. So, um, okay. Uh, she like that that started to tick me off. I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm having a I'm in a great mood on Saturday. I'm at the gym. So you're you're angry not with yourself. You're not you're not saying, hey, you know, you gotta watch your step sometimes and, and maybe I didn't. You're not talking about even putting the hundred three year old war veteran in jeopardy, but you're mad somebody at the grocery store is not wearing a mask. You're mad a JK class isn't fully masked somewhere in your neighborhood where you won't even be near. Like this stuff drives me mad Sheba the hypocrisy of this stuff I know it does and I know you're angry about this she did backtrack on the angers I think she tweeted something yesterday last night or yesterday evening uh backtracking a bit on the anger talking about no no it's not the anger it's um you know it's just the importance of of masking and and being aware and we're we're still in this pandemic and you know we can't forget about that and I, I just feel there is a little bit of fear-mongering and yeah, you were hugging a 101-year-old man? How old was he? 103, man. 103, yeah. I, I just feel like... <laughs> Don't take those two years away from him. He earned those years. And we did reach out to her, her team. Um, we did not hear back. We wanted to have her on the show, but um, mm-hmm. it, it would have been a great conversation, I think, just to see where her headspace is at. Yeah. And and I, I would never... I think about the 103-year-old, and I think this is the last human being on the planet, let alone our country of 36 million that we should tell what to do after 25 months. If you if you're 103 and you yeah. served us in war, a mm-hmm. world war, I you get to do what you want. I, I absolutely I, I cannot I can't limit that. So that gets back to mandates and it gets back to what your dad would do or my parents would or wouldn't do is going to be different than what we want for our kids. My mom will mask it up like 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 it's 1999 or 2020. Um, at uh, at Canadian Tire, Walmart, wherever she may not go to a restaurant with me, what, you know, even for the next few months, and I don't know what will change six months from now. But that's a that's a different story than telling somebody who did the work, who got their shots, who's lived their life. We've uh, we've isolated so many older people. Think about your dad getting to see you and your husband and and his his grandchildren, his grandkids. If he li- if, if he lived in an apartment in Edmonton, who'd be visiting him? He gets that socialization. And a lot of older people don't. And we have absolutely limited those people from socializing. Oh, I know. And my my dad is the opposite of your mom. I mean, when there was a lockdown, he was locked inside of his building for over a month. Mm -hmm. And in this time, in this room. So he wasn't even allowed to go into the hallways. There wasn't even, they weren't even having dinner together or meals together. So when he got out, he just, he ignores everything I have to say. He goes everywhere. He does everything. He's got a mask on half the time. It's under his nose, but he just ignores everything I say. He walks right by me. He's, I think he's realized I'm 84. I want to see my grandkids get out of my way. Yeah. And I have to, I have to respect that. I have to respect that also. And, and that they, and that they're doing a better job advocating the the people that have been alive seven, eight decades are are sometimes doing a better job advocating for our kids than people that are our age and our generation is. I think we've, we've, we've taken our eye off the ball. I agree with you there. 
Thanks so much for listening to Toronto Today. You can find us where you get your podcasts, and we'll be back with a live show tomorrow between 5.30 and 9. You can listen on the Radio Player Canada app or right here on 640toronto.com.